Good morning. Uh, our passage today is 2 Peter 3, verses 1 to 5. Those are in the, in the Bibles 15. Uh, those are in the Bibles in the chairs in front of you on page 1227. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and the speed, and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. What, um, one of the ministers here. And if I'm right, and if Andrew's right, I get to preach somewhere between 45 minutes and an hour. <laughs> yes, buckle your seatbelts, folks. Uh, it would actually be, I won't go that long, but it would be helpful to have, uh, everyone's relieved, your Bibles open at 2 Peter chapter 3, if you could do that, that would be fantastic, because uh, I will be referring to it throughout, and uh, as Andrew's already prayed, uh, we'll just get straight underway, and let me tell you that um, this Thursday is a very important day for me, it's my mum's uh, 75th birthday, so happy birthday to my mum, and equally important, if I'm to believe a flyer that's been circulating in our city, a giant tsunami is going to hit Sydney and 400,000 people are going to lose their lives. Uh, I got the warning about the tsunami from this flyer that popped up in my mailbox or in tray somewhere. Uh, and uh, my son, one of my sons keeps taking himself off to the city to take photos. And he's gone for hours. I say, show me the photos. And there's like two of them. So I'm thinking, what have you been doing? Have you been hanging out at pool halls and getting tattoos and things of that nature? But he told me that he saw a guy with one of those sandwich boards walking around the city also announcing this prophetic warning from God about the coming tsunami. 
Uh, apparently even a skywriting plane uh, also announced it one clear day recently. So big news. Let me read from the flyer. Harborside suburbs like Kirribilli and Balmain will be swept away. Inner city suburbs such as Newtown will be destroyed. Well, you can never get a car park there anyway, can you? Uh, the Harbour Bridge will be destroyed. It might wreck the commute. And the eastern foreshore will be destroyed. Cronulla, Bondi, Manly, gone. 400,000 people are going to lose their lives. It is an act of judgment upon Sydney. The last line says, this is your hour of warning. So, um, two big things on Thursday. Mum's birthday and we're all going to die. Now, I reckon that none of us take this prophetic warning too seriously, partly because the flies are sensationalised. I mean, the opera house is cut adrift and it is kind of riding a wave underneath um, the Harbour Bridge, partly because it's always sort of the strange guys with the sandwich boards that are announcing these things, but also because we just don't think it can be that bad. I mean, if worse comes to worse, we'll just leg it up the hill to a Lambie. Or to Fairlight, won't we? And we'll all be sweet. Now, isn't it true that deep down we think little of such warnings because deep down what we think is it could never happen? Everything just goes on like it always has since the beginning. Life, we think, is, is circular and cyclical. It's ever going around. It's not linear. It's not headed towards an end point and certainly not an end point which will involve the judgment of God. Now, why are we so sure about that? And would that even be good? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about today as we look at the God who judges. Uh, if you're here with us for the first time, we're, we're doing a series called The Believer's Guide to God. And uh, so far, we've investigated the God who is three, that is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. We've looked at the God who creates all things, including us. The God who makes promises, binding promises to humanity. The God who is with us, preeminently in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, but also his Holy Spirit. And that brings us to today, the God who judges. And the first thing to see is that God has already brought judgment upon the world and its inhabitants. If we are likely to think that, that God will never bring judgment, then we need to be reminded that in fact he already has. And we see this as we open up to 2 Peter chapter 3, which is why uh, you need to have that open in front of you. And uh, in verses 3 and 4, it says that in the last days, that is the, the days between the resurrection of Jesus, the historical resurrection of Jesus and his return, people will scoff at the idea that Jesus will return. And they will say to themselves, where is this coming? God has promised. I mean, everything just goes on and on as it has since the beginning. Very similar reaction and sentiment that we might have had to the warning about the impending tsunami this Thursday. Scoffing can't happen. Everything just goes round and round. It always has. But it is worth us seeing that any view of our world that refuses to believe that God will return in the person of his son to wrap it up, bringing both salvation and judgment is not just driven by ignorance. It's not just driven by indifference. It's also driven by a wish to continue following our own evil desires. Have a look at verse 5. It describes it as deliberate forgetfulness. Deliberate forgetfulness. That is, I think, one of the results of a view that does not see an end. 
a final judgment, a righting of wrongs. There is simply no ultimate accountability, no reason to stop following the illicit desires of our hearts. Now, we will return to this idea soon, but you can see that both ignorantly and also deliberately, people resist the idea that God will return to bring judgment. Ignorant, deliberate, but also careless, because the Apostle Peter says next that God has already brought judgment. Read along with me verses 5 and 6. They deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. You see what he's saying? Everything does not go on in the same way since the beginning of the creation. God created the world as we know it from the watery chaos. You read that, page 1, Genesis 1. But you also have to remember that he destroyed the world at the time of Noah by those same waters as an act of judgment upon the evil of humanity. The flood was not just an act of anti-creation, literally reversing creation where God separated the dry land from the waters. It was furthermore an act of judgment upon the earth for the wickedness of its inhabitants. Do you remember how Genesis 6 goes at the start of that story? The Lord saw how great was the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. And so with great regret, he flooded the earth. Really is foolish to think that Jesus will not return, that God will not bring judgment as well as salvation, that everything will just continue as it is. And the proof of all that is not only that Jesus has already come once, it's that God has already brought judgment upon the earth. It happened at the time of the flood in Noah's day. It actually happened throughout the history of the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament, both to Israel's oppressors, but also to Israel herself when she wandered away from following God. When we open our New Testaments, Romans 1 tells us that the judgment of God is even happening today in a kind of indirect and passive sense. It says the wrath of God is, in the present tense, being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of humanity. And you might think, how, how does he do that? How is he doing that? Well, three times in that chapter, it tells us that God's wrath is handed down upon people when he hands them over to their own desires when he gives us over to our own depraved minds and shameful lusts. It is amongst the worst things that could ever happen to a human being when God lets us do whatever we want without intervening. We, of course, think it's a great freedom, but it's a judgment of sorts when we're left to our own devices. But whether we're talking about the flood in Noah's day or the judgment of the nations in Israel's history, or even that sort of uh, passive and indirect judgment of God today as he hands us over to our own desires and warped minds, the greater reality is that God will bring a final judgment. He will bring a final judgment. Uh, there is, of course, a real sensitivity to the idea of being judged these days. Um, kind of the worst thing you can do to someone in our culture is to judge them. We resent it. We resist it. It's almost a catch cry of modern culture to say, don't judge me, you can't judge me. In fact, it's not uh, uncommon 
to see people with tattoos, um, people like you know rugby league players and bearded baristas and probably my son as well now, um, with a tattoo that has this motto, only God can judge me. Now, let me just say, if you're going to get that tattoo, just make sure that you get it spelled correctly and clearly because there's just no point in getting a tattoo that says only God can fudge me. What a waste of time that is. There's one bloke, actually, he got the only God can judge me tattoo and then apparently he woke up to himself and realised that it was a ridiculously pretentious tattoo and so he got it altered in a Surrey Hill studio to say, only God will judge me and an actual judge and my mother and my friends, and my colleagues, and people on Twitter, especially people on Twitter. (laughs) I I don't think that actually happened to you. (laughs) It's not a true story. But you know what? That sentiment is true, isn't it? We resist the thought that another person could judge us, very sensitive to that. Only God can judge me, but truth be told, we know that an actual judge can as well, and our mums, if we've been naughty. And let me say, if you've ever been wronged, you definitely want there to be judgment you want there to be justice you want that wrong to be righted or at the very least to be acknowledged you don't want ills transgressions crimes and sins swept under the carpet if they're ills transgressions crimes and sins that are committed against you and what kind of a two-bit god would sweep ills transgressions crimes and sins under the carpet anyway and not deal with them with justice and so we do have this very odd relationship to the idea of justice and judgment we want it but only if it's not directed towards us we resist it and yet we acknowledge that it's not right but either way the scripture makes very clear that it is coming God will bring a final judgment. The Apostle Peter, in our verses today, says the proof that God will bring it lies in the fact that he has brought it before. And the fact that it has been a while, this coming of the Lord should not be interpreted as forgetfulness on God's behalf, should not be thought that it's just slipped his mind, that he is slow in some way, that it it just keeps getting pushed down his to-do list. He's not slow, he's just got a different relationship to time than we do. And we ought to understand this delay, if you want to call it a delay, as God's patience motivated by his strong desire to give people an opportunity to turn back to him. We see there in verse 15, his patience means salvation. And he takes no pleasure in the death of a sinner. And so the issue, friends, is not one of God's capability and it's not one of forgetfulness. The coming of the judgment of God is certain. And the Apostle Peter, for that reason, makes a very affirmative declaration of this in verse 10. Read along with me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens, that's the skies, will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. He's simply saying that the judgment of God will happen. In fact, Jesus will bring it when he returns with that familiar metaphor, like a thief surprising us his return will bring about the destruction of the elements by fire rather than a flood this time around we see that in both verse 10 and 12 to clear the ground to make way for a new construction if you like a new heaven and a new earth a new home where righteousness dwells 
So we've seen that though we might have mixed feelings about this whole idea of judgment, I mean, we like it when it works in our favour at least, the judgment of God is going to happen with finality at the return of Jesus. Well, how exactly is that going to work? Well, a passage of Scripture like uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 speaks very clearly. I've got it up here. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Paul there is speaking to persecuted Christians. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble persecuted Christians and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be punished with everlasting destruction, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all who have believed. My goodness, that's a thunderbolt passage, isn't it? Well, what does it say about the who, what, when, how and why? The judgment of God will be brought about by Jesus when he appears from heaven with his angelic attendants, though we don't know precisely when that will be. It will be a day of marvel for those who believe, as well as a day in which persecuted believers will be vindicated for their faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. It will also be a day on which those who reject the person of God and his great gospel message will be punished. That is judged, though I take no delight in saying this, nor does God take delight in the doing of it. And whilst it is difficult to know exactly what this punishment or judgment is like, we do know that it's destructive, that it has eternal consequences, and that it involves being shut off from the goodness and presence of the infinitely good one. In other words, we don't know exactly what it will be like, but we know enough to know that it is to be avoided at all costs. And so, friends, humbly, I, I think you have to ask yourself, would I be able to stand before Jesus on the day of his return? The way of asking that question is to say, am I someone who has resisted or rejected God during my life, regardless of my individual moral performance? or my community service, or my thoughtful and loving disposition? Am I someone who has resisted or rejected God's gospel message, which centers on Jesus and the work he has done in his life and death and resurrection in order to bring me back to God? And if that's you, you would gather from this passage that God will judge you for what you have done in your life, calling you to account for the things that you have done and said or perhaps left undone and unsaid. And if that's you, or you're not even sure this morning, I would suggest to you respectfully, you have business to do with God and I think it ought to be attended to this very day. Now, I understand that this is very heavy going. <laughs> it might not have been what you were looking forward to when you came to church this morning you know i was astonished a few years ago I was, I was having a conversation with one of the women from church great lady who came to faith as an adult here at st matthews and you could have just knocked me over with a feather when she said you guys don't talk about sin very much like at all 
And I was astonished because she's an every Sunday kind of Christian. It's not like we just spoke about it on the week that she wasn't here. You guys don't talk about sin very much, like, at all. And my goodness, I thought, I hope we're not holding back because we're chicken. Well, if we don't talk about sin very much, I reckon we'd talk even less about judgment. But if the judgment of God is just in that he will right all wrongs, and if it's coming in any case, that I must finish with some ideas of how to prepare for it. So can I suggest some ways that we can be ready for the judgment of God whenever Jesus returns? And firstly, allow me to talk to friends here who who would not consider themselves to be Christians, that is, followers of God, those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Uh, Friend, you prepare for the God who judges by making peace with him, by turning and trusting in his Son. In other words, you seize upon salvation. And you can read that there in verses 14 and 15. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with God. Well, you do that by trusting in Jesus. Bear in mind, our Lord's patience means salvation. Think what the Apostle Peter is saying is that your job, whilst there is still time, is to turn back to God, placing your trust and your future firmly in Jesus, who lived perfectly among us, who died sacrificially for us, who rose triumphantly that we might be guaranteed to rise again from our own physical death unto eternal life. You know, my real problem with this flyer, it's not that it's sensationalised and the opera house is floating in the harbour. It's not even that it's printed in black and white. Like if this was for real, at least do it in colour. My real problem is that it encourages us to head to the hills, doesn't it? Fairlight, Alambi, Blue Mountains at a stretch. When it should be encouraging us to run to Jesus. To fall at his feet. Admitting our shortcomings and our attitude of rebellion against God claiming his forgiveness and basking in the sure hope that such repentance and faith brings. I don't know if you've figured out in this series called The Believer's Guide to God, we don't have a week on the God who saves. Uh, I think that's because the idea pops up every week. The God who creates is, of course, the God who makes us new creations, saving us in Christ Jesus. The God who promises is the one who's promised us forgiveness of sins because of the saving work of his Son. The God who is with us is the one who came down in human form to live among us and then die sacrificially for us to save us. And today, the God who judges is the one who is holding back patiently, providing an opportunity to turn back to his Son. And so, friend, if you wouldn't call yourself a believer, this passage urges you to seize upon salvation. And I would encourage you to do that as a matter of great urgency. If you are a Christian, and I know there's many of us here this morning in that category, this passage urges us to go after godliness. You seize upon salvation, then you go after godliness. Uh, Read along with me in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way... What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. In other words, in view of the coming judgment of God at the return of Christ, Christians ought to go after godliness. Seize upon salvation, go after godliness. Now, of course, I'm talking about individual moral purity.
Of course, I'm talking about individual moral purity, but I'm also talking about loving kindness to others. I'm talking about faithful service to God. I'm, I'm talking about granting forgiveness with greater freedom than before and resisting revenge with greater forbearance. Isn't it the case that when you understand that your sin has been not swept under the carpet but paid for, judged in the death of Christ, the perfect one in your place with the result that you're forgiven, is it not the case that you ought to experience a greater freedom to forgive others who have wronged you? Have you experienced that freedom? And have you volunteered forgiveness to those who have genuinely asked for it? Is it not the case that when you understand that God will bring everything into the light, that he will right all wrongs, either in the horrific death of his son for those who turn to him, or with great justice and wrath for those who resist him, that ought to enable us to resist revenge? I understand the desire for, for payback and vengeance is a strong and basic instinct. But when we know that God will judge all things and all people with great justice, is it not the case that we are able to resist revenge and work for peace with abnormal restraint? I think it is, and I commend that to us. And so in view of the coming judgment of God, we seize upon salvation, we go after godliness. I wonder, Christians, if you understand that we too will be judged. It's not only those who don't trust in the Lord Jesus who experience God's judgment, we will too. Of course, in a different way. For Christians, our, our sins are judged, they are paid for, they are dealt with when God poured out his judgment and his wrath upon his perfect son in our place. So graciously, God does not judge us for our sins, but our service is weighed. Our godliness is considered. We are assessed for what we did in his service with all the opportunities, talents, gifts, possessions God gave us during our earthly life. Isn't that what the parable of the servants is all about? Aren't we meant to take all that God has given us and put it to work in his service, whether that's in small ways or in bigger ways, so that we might hear our master's voice at the end of days saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your master's happiness so that we might rightly look forward to being rewarded by our master for a faithful life. Whether that reward is kind of more responsibility in the life to come, whether it's the joy of seeing the eternal results of our earthly labor and ministry, or even if it's just the supreme pleasure of knowing that our master in heaven is delighted with us. Christians, we will be judged, just not on our sin which has been dealt with in Christ, but on our service and on our holiness. So having seized upon salvation, let us go after godliness, forgiving freely and resisting revenge and serving wholeheartedly. As we finish up, fair way short of 45 minutes, might I say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do this Thursday. First thing, I'm going to ring my mum and wish her a happy birthday. Thanks for being my mum. Then I'm going to get to work to finish next week's message. And I'm going to do both of those things in Manly. 
zero degrees, zero metres, I should say, above sea level. And that's not because I know that there will definitively be no tsunami, although I really don't, don't think there will be. But, you know, God's done it before, so what I think is actually not the most relevant factor. No, I will be zero metres above sea level because I don't need to run to the hills. I've already run to Jesus. And I've seized upon the salvation that he offers graciously to an undeserving person like me. Friends, I would urge you to do the same. In fact, I would urge you to do it well before Thursday, for we don't even know what tomorrow will bring. And having done that, I exhort us all to go after godliness in all its forms. For we worship a God who saves, and we follow the God who judges. Let's pray to him now. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, forgive us for our foolishness in thinking that the world and life just goes on forever and ever, as it has from the beginning, deliberately forgetting, as it were, that you've already brought judgment. And so we have sufficient warning. I pray you'd put it on the hearts of friends here to consider very seriously this very day even, turning and trusting in you, seizing upon salvation. And I pray for many brothers and sisters here who've already done just that, that you would move our hearts to go after godliness in all its forms, forgiving freely and resisting revenge and serving wholeheartedly. Do this in order to bring honour and glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will return, and in whose name we pray. Amen.